Hello and welcome back to the Pulse Podcast, the podcast of the resident doctors of British Columbia that deals with all things residency in the beautiful province of British Columbia. My name is Jeff Frost. I am a fourth year physiatry resident here in BC and I'll be your host today. So first of all, kind of shocking that I'm in fourth year. I think I was in second year when we started this project. So it's been a blast. Uh, Today, we're going over a presentation that myself and the president of the Resident Doctors of BC, uh, Nick Momfries, gave at this year's orientation. The presentation seemed to go well. We got some good feedback, so we thought it would be useful to take the audio from the presentation and make it available in podcast format. During this presentation, we talked about some financial tips for residents. So yeah, I hope you find it useful. I have a couple annotations and extra bits of information that I'm going to add at the end of the cast, so I'll catch you on the other side. All right, so I hope everyone enjoyed their break. They got some coffee, got to socialize. I think it is so important to see each other break. I'm glad some residents came and I chatted with some residents. Uh, It's important to meet you, especially because as I'm in emergency medicine, I'm probably going to be consulting many of you overnight. And so I want to apologize in advance for waking you up while on call. So please do come say hi to me at some point during the breaks. Um, So now we're getting on to talk about finance. Um, So I'll start our talk with a little brief story about finances and residency. So for our negotiations, we wanted to come up with a social media campaign, something where I'm being told to hold them closer. Uh, We wanted to come up with a social media campaign that talked about just what a resident does to the general public. And as with anything on social media, you can get some really colorful opinions on the comments section. And I tried my best not to read the comments section of our advertisements. But one night, I think I was on neurology call. I was between consults. It was 3 a.m. The willpower just gave away, and I read the comments section. And while there were some positive comments, there was some people who thought residents were making staff-level money. They were owning mansions in West Vancouver. They had our own personal assistants. Someone commented that we all have our own personal assistants. And I was like, what? You know, while, while I love my Vancouver condo, 580 square feet is not a mansion. Would you agree, Jeff? Uh, no, 580 square feet is not a mansion. But nope. I do love it. And with the average resident having $150,000 in debt when they graduate, we're definitely not swimming in cash. But I think what happens is we, now that we have doctor in front of our name, people assume that we are well off and have no concerns. So what we wanted to do from a resident perspective, just give some tips we had and we experienced during residency about finances. And from the perspective of us who have line of credits, paying debt, and managing our bills, so from residents. And that's the huge disclaimer. Jeff, it was a good thing we took this photo, as it seems to be the only photo It's the only photo. Just, despite our multiple-year friendship, this it, is the only photo we have. It's very good. Um, <laughs> so, of course, the, this talk, the huge disclaimer is, of course, we're not financial advisors, we're residents. But we do have an interest in this, and we wanted to give just really practical advice. So this is our tips. We're going to give you seven tips, and we're going to run through them now. So tip number one, you heard this already, know how to read your pay stub. It sounds super simple, but it's really important because it's a common question that we get at Resident Doctors of BC is what is my pay stub saying? So we have your pay stub 
example right here. So you all be, you know, not too long ago, Jeff and I, back in the good old days, we received pay stubs by paper. Back in my day. That was just, just four months ago, I think they switched yep. to online. Yep. But yeah. Yeah. so... Yeah. <laughs> online. Now you'll get your pay stub online um, through your health authority account. Everyone will receive the pay stub from Vancouver Coastal Health, regardless of which health authority site you're actually based out of. The one, the one things I want to point out here, and if you have any further questions, Jeff's podcast does go into great detail about this. Is thirty-eight excruciating minutes of detail. Wonderful minutes of detail. <laughs> um, number five up in that top right corner. That is your net pay. That is the money that's going to go into your bank account. That is built up through number eight, which is your earnings. Now, just something to point out, you'll see when you look at your pay stub, it will say hours work 75 hours. Now, it would be great if we just worked 75 hours bi-weekly. Fantastic. But it's not. I'd love it. But that's just how the system is set up. So a common question we get is like, oh, I worked more than 75 hours. Absolutely. You may work double this, but it's regardless, <laughs> it's 75 hours. So that's just the standard system, all right? The, we also have in that eight is your call is separate. So your call is separated out as in-hospital call, out-of-hospital call, and that's a lump sum. Nicholas, I'd like to point out that only wonderful residents like myself have out-of-hospital call. That's right. <laughs> Not everyone has that. <laughs> 10 is the deductions. We'll go into a bit more detail about that. And then that brings you to your number five, your net pay. So that is our, your soon-to-be-arriving pay stub. Tip number two, Jeff. You want the roving mic? Yeah, let's, let's go for a walk here. So tip number two, understand your monthly income and the appropriate deductions that go with it. This is key. So, Nicholas, if you wouldn't mind, next slide. If you're going to have the clicker. So... When, what we have here on the left side, I guess that would be your right side of the page, is what your pay grade will be as you progress through residency. So starting in the start of our, you're an R1, as of the 1st of April, you will be paid approximately $55,000. That's excellent. When you go up to R2, you're going to move up to a salary of $62,000 and then $69,000. That sounds like a lot of money. And here in British Columbia, we get paid bi-weekly. So every two weeks, you're going to get money deposited into your account. If you look at the $55,000, that breaks down to a bi-weekly gross pay. We're going to focus on this word gross of $2,100. That sounds pretty great, but it's your gross pay. And we're going to get into what that means in just a second. Do remember that there's other sources of income as a resident. For an R1, primarily your other source of income is doing call. If you're in a call-heavy specialty, your income can increase by as much as $10,000. Of course, you have to log every single call on the callstipend.ca website, or you won't get paid. So don't forget to do that. There are a few other ways to make money as a resident, but those, you start to access those once you get into your second, third, fourth, fifth years. So as a first year, salary and call. But then there's deductions. Now, the biggest deduction in Canada is taxes. We live in a society that taxes pretty heavily, and for that we get lots of things like roads, bridges, police forces. It's all great, but we have to pay for it somehow. So the employer in Canada deducts taxes at source. So that means they deduct taxes on behalf of the government from your paycheck. So already that $2,100 we talked about, it's a myth. You'll never see it because a large part of your income taxes are coming straight out of your paycheck. So you can use tax credits to reduce the amount of taxes you pay, and you can use tax credits at source. If that's something you want to do, think about it, ask me a question later. But at the end of the day, 
What you should know is that as someone who's been in school for a long time, you probably have tax credits and tax deductions, which you can apply to your tax bill at the end of the year to get money back. We typically find that our ones and our twos get around $5,000 back if you have the average university experience in Canada. So that's a great amount of money to get back. So don't forget about it near the end of our one. It'll help you get through the year financially. And do your taxes on time too. Like if you wait till the, you're just waiting to get your refund if you wait till the very end deadline. So. Mm-hmm. And there, there are other deductions here in British Columbia. Nicholas, if you wouldn't mind. Um, so we have our income tax. That's our biggest one. As you can see there, it's about $9,000. We all pay into the Canada Pension Plan. It's not optional. $2,500. There's also employment insurance. Again, not optional. We then pay union dues here in British Columbia to the resident doctors of BC. We get a dental plan. I just want to highlight that because... Health, dental hygiene is important, and anyone who works at St. Paul's will know that, so make use of this. Make use of this. Make sure that you get your own teeth checked. We can get them checked uh, twice a year, and it's covered by this plan. We do pay into it so that we can benefit from that. We have an extended medical premium. That basically means things like physiotherapy, massage therapy, stuff like that. If you have time off from work and play a lot of sports, as some of us physiatry residents do, you'll be using the physiotherapy option quite a bit. Uh, There's group life insurance. So we'll talk more about what life insurance means and why that matters, but we do get that through through our employer, but we do pay into it as well. And then finally, accidental death and disability insurance. What I really want to highlight here is we started with $55,000. After all our deductions, we're down to $41,000. So your true take-home pay is significantly less than the the bumper line that you see on CARMS. And again, what matters is our bi-weekly pay. So our bi-weekly pay... Again, this is our net pay, because we took our gross pay, we, duct- we took away our deductions, we're now at net pay, so our net bi-weekly pay is about $1,600. So that's what you're going to see hit your bank account. Now, if you work a lot of call, that number will go up a bit, but assume $1,600. So that's significantly less than you might have expected, just look b- based on the CARMS website, and I want you guys all to know this, because we do have to plan a budget. So that takes us to tip number three, which is building a budget. And it sounds very simple as well, but I think it's really helpful to have a budget in place, especially looking at what our net income is as residents. And BC is a a very high cost of living. I remember someone once said BC stands for bring cash because it is a very expensive (laughs) um, place to live. So a budget does help us in this process. So simply, obviously, a budget is you want to earn more than you spend, and you want to spend within your means. Very simple concepts, but quite hard to execute. We talked about our income level, the sources of income that we have as residents, um, and now we will touch upon some of our expenses and how we budget it. We thought it'd be interesting to see what does the Government of Canada recommend our budget breakdown is for each of these costs that we pay. So what we did is we took your net monthly income as an R1 resident, so that's the money that will be hitting your bank account per month, and we took the percentages that the government of Canada recommends. Now, if you'll look in the top housing line, that would mean if you were supposed to spend 40% of your income, that would mean your rent would be just under $1,400. I can assure you, I do not pay $1,400 in rent. I pay much more than that. Um, So this is not to mean this is what you have to follow for your budget, but you can see how we can play around the numbers. And obviously, residents have a bit of a different experience, and it doesn't really fit well into these percentages. For example, the interest on a $150,000 line of credit is about $425, so that's much more than the allocation. What we just wanted to show here, though, it is very helpful to know what income you're going to get per month and then building a budget off of that. 
So I guess that brings us to tip number four, which is understand your debt and interest rates. I'll stay here. So debt. There's many, many sources of debt. What is debt? We all know what debt is. It's you borrow money so that you can spend it now and pay it back in the future. For residents, there's five main sources of debt. Uh, The first is the line of credit. So most of us in the room probably have a line of credit from one of Canada's major banks. They're really great because we get them at a really nice rate. So we get them at the prime interest rate minus 0.25%, which ends up being 3.7% in today's economic climate. That will change throughout the course of your residency. What's important to know is that there's a cost associated with that debt. So anytime you borrow money, there's a cost. The best debt you can get is debt that has a 0% interest rate. Now, that's really hard to achieve. It does exist. You know, if the bank of mom and dad can help out, that's great. Uh, The other source that is more available for most of us, and some of us are probably carrying, are provincial student loans. So many provinces do not charge interest on their provincial student loans while you are still a student. As a resident, you're technically considered a student. So if you have a provincial student loan from one of the kinder provinces, you may not need to pay interest on your loan throughout the course of residency. I would encourage you to look into this. If you fall into that category, hold on to that provincial student loan greedily because it's the cheapest form of debt you can ever get. It's a 0% interest rate. Beyond that, there's federal student loans. I'm not going to go into too much detail because right now federal student loans have a very high cost on them, between 6 and 9%, but the Liberal government has proposed legislation to bring that down to prime, so to bring that down to around the level of the line of credit. I would encourage you to keep your eye on this because what we want to achieve with our debt, because we carry such non-trivial amounts of it, is to consolidate it and pay the lowest possible interest rate. So if I have a federal student loan that's running at 9%, that's a really high interest rate. It would be much better to take money out of my line of credit, pay down the federal student loan, and then accept that debt onto the line of credit because the interest rate on the line of credit is much lower. A difference of about 6%. And when you're compounding monthly for many years as a resident, that difference really matters. So our goal is to find whatever debt source we can that has the lowest possible interest rate and use that preferentially before moving on to other more expensive debt sources. And for us as residents, the most expensive debt source would be a credit card. I would encourage you to avoid holding debt on a credit card. Do your very best to use your line of credit to pay off credit cards. The interest rate difference is so huge that you'll save tons of money in just a month if you can push all your credit card debt onto your line of credit. And then the last one, if you're lucky enough to maybe live in Prince George, you might be able to afford a home. Uh, And in that case, you might have a mortgage. Uh, If you do have a mortgage, I'd encourage you to pursue the best possible rate. You can either get someone to, there's uh, mortgage brokers who will try and find the best rate for you. I would just encourage you to find a mortgage broker that's familiar with physicians because we do have different rules around what we're allowed to borrow uh, and at what rate we can borrow it at. So just do your due diligence if you're pursuing a mortgage. And that brings us to this this concept of a prime rate. I just want to go over this really, really quickly because it does affect you greatly due to your line of credit. So... How the economy works in a nutshell, and again, remember, resident, not economist. Um, the, the Bank of Canada gives out money to the major banks in Canada, and they do this to control the levers of the economy, to make the economy go or to slow the economy down. And that's called the interest rate that's set by the Bank of Canada. Currently, it's set at 1.75%. Those major banks then take the money given to them by the government as they print off the money, and they distribute it to you and me, to people around the country. Now, there's a middleman involved, so they jack up the price. And that's where we get this concept of a prime rate. So the prime rate is the lowest possible rate that the 
major commercial banks will lend to the average individual. And it's usually set at the, rate, or the Bank of Canada rate plus 2.2%. So currently that's 3.95%. But you're special. Not only are you a millennial, you're a resident. So you get a prime rate minus 0.25%. So if you're sitting here in the audience and you don't have a line of credit at 3.7%, you know, maybe just get up and call your banker because you should be getting that rate. Uh, every resident has access to that rate and that difference of 0.25% over even a two-year family medicine residency really does add up when you're holding $160,000 in debt, which is the average. So get the lowest possible rate and importantly, know that the rate can vary. So the, the rate set by the Bank of Canada has varied historically, and Nick put in this really wonderful graph. It gives me palpitations to look at. You know? I know. I, why don't you tell the people why it causes you so much palpitations, so, Nick? Not only does this look like an ST Elevation MI, if you squint your <laughs> eyes, it, it shows this is actually the prime rate in Canada over time. And so in 1982, the prime rate was just under 20%. So our line of credit would have been... 19.75%. So it's just something to know. That it's, a, it's a scary graph, but it's knowing that our interest rates can change. And so, you know, even though we have a good interest rate now and it's favorable, it doesn't necessarily mean that's always the case. And it, it, interest rates do change. When I started residency, I think my line of credit was 3.2 or something. It was yeah. much lower than it is now. And the important moral of that story is that as you go through residency, this rate may go up. So do your best to keep your debt down. The, the, the greater your debt, if there's a big spike in interest rates, it's going to affect you more. So, oh, we got some math up here. We got some, oh my goodness, math. I know I have two engineering degrees, but God, math in front of a crowd. So if I have a $160,000 line of credit, how much monthly interest am I going to pay? So we're going to skip the work because it's there. You can take a photo of it and check it later. But the brass tax here is on a $160,000 line of credit. You're going to be paying $486.58 in interest. Now, just pause there. That's a lot of money. That's a significant amount of your after-tax income. And it works out to $5,838.90 annually. So it's, it's a lot of money. And I think the big thing to keep in mind is that the more you can keep down your debt, the more you can keep down that interest charge, better for you financially. And we should talk about how the line of credit balance that is used by the banks to determine how much interest they're going to charge is your average of your balance throughout the month. So, I mean, that is important because you can change your balance throughout the month, month to minimize your interest cost. And we have a wonderful example. Very complicated. To example. explain this. Yes, okay. So what we're actually saying is just use your line of credit PRN as needed. Um, so what it means is that if you sort of say, oh, I'm going to, my monthly expenses is going to be $5,000. So let's say I'm, my decision is I'm going to withdraw $5,000 from my line of credit at the beginning of the month. So I'm covered for the whole month. Mm -hmm. But Jeff, you only... I'm, I'm a thrifty spender. I know that I need $2,000 for my rent. And then I estimate that in week three, I'm going to need another $3,000. But I'm going to withdraw that $3,000 in week three, not at the start of the month like Nick. And so we both spent the same amount of money, but you'll actually notice that our average daily balance is different, and thus that gives to us a different interest charge. So, so because Nick withdrew everything at the start of the month, his average daily, ba his average daily balance is 165000 whereas because I spread out my withdrawals, my average daily balance is only 162000 even though we use the exact same amount of money in a 30-day period. What that means is our monthly interest charge goes from 500 for Nick to 493 for me. So $7. Guys, big it's deal. Important. It is important. Because look what $7.81 can get you. 
So all of these are around our wonderful Vancouver General Hospital. It can get you two Grande Americanos. It can get you a yam roll and a California roll at Miniato Sushi. It can get a half a bowl of ramen, so not a full bowl of ramen. But it can get you also the best kept secret, the lunch special at New India Buffet. We'll get you $7. And, and while this may seem a little facetious, like $8 in a month, come on, guys, I have better things to worry about. What we're trying to get at here is that discipline and careful planning can lead to saving a lot of money over the long term, especially since residency in some cases is five, six, seven years. Being thoughtful about how you use your money really helps. So I think that brings us to the, you know, this is the most common part, I think, of any financial presentation is spending. All the evidence shows when you think about financial planning and financial wealth and financial literacy, the spending is something that is the, can make the biggest difference to your own personal financial wealth. So spending wisely is important. Now, as residents, it can be kind of, you know, uh, Jeff made this slide because I disagree with it. But um, uh, so you'll see Jeff wanted to sort of show there's choices you can make in residency. And so, you know, in the bottom, you can choose to walk on a log or you can go to this wonderful beach resort. Okay, I, I need to justify myself here. So the log that Nick so derisively describes is the west coast trail which is meant to be one of the greatest hiking trails in the world it's located on vancouver island which is a short drive and ferry ride away that's not very expensive to get to and it would be a wonderful vacation alternatively you could take the nick Monfries route and go to french polynesia stay i'm stay on a lovely bungalow i'm not gonna lie it's beautiful over and water over the ocean i'm yeah. sure there's fish that i'm allergic to it's fine <laughs> But you have to pay for that flight and then rent the bunk. It's, they're different costs for equally awesome experiences. <laughs> I don't know about that. But we have had, you know, we, we've definitely experienced it that some of our residents, as we sort of get starting to make a salary, we get super excited and we're like, you know what, we're making a salary. Let me buy a new car. You know, the Tesla looks good. I'm going to buy it. We're going to put it down. It'll be ready when I'm staff. And just we advise, of course, it makes sense, but to be cautious with what you spend on. And I think that takes us into sort of the other things we've encountered as residents. And these are things that we asked our sort of colleagues what they thought about with spending, and these are sort of their suggestions. So one thing they brought up is subscriptions. So subscriptions are fantastic. So in Vancouver and a lot of the lower mainland, you can get awesome grocery delivery services, food prep services. But the thing is, if you forget to cancel them one month, it automatically bills. And you can sometimes, when you have a subscription model, those costs can kind of hide. And so so it's just something important to keep an eye on and don't forget when you do subscribe to something, make sure you keep an eye on those costs. Another thing that's been mentioned, I'm from Alberta and I you know, love my cars, but in Vancouver and Lower Mainland and lots of part of BC, you may not need to spend on getting a car. I think it is many residents have uh, had uh, very good success without having a car and been able to make it to all their rotations without a problem, like Dr. Frost here. That's true. I've gone three years here in Vancouver without owning a car. car to go is really useful. Evo is really useful. Also, my bike is great. Alana can tell you all about my biking get-up. It's embarrassing, but it gets me there. You know, and so, you know, I think it also brings us to... So I'm not too sure, Jeff, this outfit here, I, I don't think it works for me that you have on this slide, <laughs> but um, no, I think you're just saying... All I'm trying to say is that, yes, we need to show up to work looking professional. Obviously, I missed the memo this morning, sorry. But what you need to do, what I encourage you to do, is find a way to get clothing that's appropriate for work at a reasonable cost. You know, we can, we can buy clothing off the runway in Paris, or we can go to Winners and hit the bargain basement. Can anyone tell the difference? I don't know. <laughs> 
So these were just some tips that residents have given. We've also, they also mentioned stuff not to potentially spend less on. So definitely get a good cell phone plan. We often use our cell phones throughout the hospital to return pages and everything like that. It's, gonna, it's kind of a pain to try to find the, like a regular telephone to answer a page. Don't so even do, know what that is. do spend on a cell phone. And then they talk about these textbooks here. I guess that is the olden way of doing it. But medical education obviously is changing. So, you know, don't... By yeah. the current new subscriptions, new textbooks of things. That's just what some residents have mentioned. Yeah, and for me, too, the big one to highlight here is cell phones. There's nothing more frustrating than trying to return a page in a hospital and you have no service. It's, uh, it's worth investing in a cell phone in my mind. Yeah, for sure. Tip number six. Nicholas, I'm going to need the mic. I'm going to have to walk around to keep you guys entertained because we are talking about insurance. Yeah. Woo. All right, get excited. So what's insurance all about? So when we're talking about insurance here, what I really want to talk about is personal insurance. So insurance for you and your ability to make an income. What we're not talking about, auto insurance, home insurance, stuff like that for like possessions. Not talking about that. Talking about insurance for you as an individual for your ability to continue to make money. And when you talk about individual insurance, there's three types that come up. There's long-term disability insurance, there's critical illness insurance, and there's life insurance. What I'd like to do today is describe what all of these three types of insurances are and answer the basic question, do I need this as a resident? So it'll be a bit of an overview of the different kinds of insurances that you can get. Now, the reason I want to do this, though, is because accidents happen. Now, as residents, we're in a very unique position. We have a medium to poor ability to earn income for the next little while, but we have massive debt loads. There's very few people in society that meet those two definitions. Really high debt without the real ability to pay it off in the short term. So that means that you're especially vulnerable to an accident. So if an accident does happen and you're not able to pay off your debt in the long term, that can be an insurmountable financial barrier. And we do need to be honest with ourselves. Accidents happen. So as an example, I think I can tell a personal story. So I moved here three years ago, as I mentioned. I was sitting in this audience feeling fine, young male, I think I was 28 at the time, no other health conditions. Six days later, I was in VGH because someone had decided to run a red light. They smashed my car up, totaled the car, and gave me a really bad concussion. I was no longer able to work, but I still had this debt that I needed to pay off. So I didn't do anything wrong there. The guy ran the red light, but accidents happen. And you really never know when it's going to happen or if it will happen to you but you do want to be able to overcome your financial barriers if it does occur. So insurance number one, long-term disability, LTI. We get to talk about this all the time. What long-term disability is, is an insurance vehicle that provides an income replacement in the event that you are unable to work for extended periods of time. There's typically a qualification period, either three months to five months. So what that means is you won't access this unless you're fully disabled for at least three months, and then you get on the disability plan. Now, the brass tax here is, do I need it as a resident? Yes, you absolutely do. This is non-negotiable. The reason, again, goes back to that idea that you have a very significant debt load, but an inability to pay it off in the short term. If you become disabled in residency and, and are unable to pay off your debt, it's an insurmountable financial hole that you'll never be able to climb out of unless you have some way of earning an income. That's what LTI is. It's an income for someone who can't earn it. The next one that comes up is critical illness insurance. So critical illness insurance is a vehicle that provides a lump sum payment if you are diagnosed with a condition from a qualifying list and survive a minimum period of time, typically 14 days. 
What critical illness insurance does is it bridges the gap between earning an income and accessing long-term disability. It, it solves that three to five month waiting period. Now the brass tax here, do I need it as a resident? Probably not. If you can afford to withdraw about three to five months of living expenses from your line of credit, so if you haven't maxed out your line of credit, there really is no need for this because you could just use your line of credit for those three months until your LTI kicks in. If your line of credit is maxed out, it's certainly something you might want to think about. Then the last one is life insurance. So life insurance is an insurance vehicle that pays a benefit, typically a lump sum, to your beneficiaries in the case of your death. Now the, quest, the, the brass tax again is do I need it? And this one's really interesting because it really kind of comes down to your own personal situation. So because it provides a lump sum of money to someone in the case that something goes wrong, you have to ask yourself, is there someone in my life that needs the money? I'm a single male, I don't have any kids, I don't have any partner. There's really no one who would care. So for me, for me it doesn't really matter. I'm sure my parents would be upset, let, let me be good. But there's no one who would really benefit financially from my death. So in that case, this isn't a product that I'm gonna pursue. But if you yourself are married, if you have a partner, if you have children, and you want to be able to provide a financial lump sum to them in the case of your death, this is something that you may want to strongly consider. Again, it really comes down to your personal situation. There's strong, strong arguments for and against this. And I should point out, as I think Nick's going to jump in and say, as a resident here in British Columbia, you automatically have a small life insurance policy through your employer. So the only question you need to ask yourself is, do I want an even greater life insurance policy than what I currently get through my employer? And so those are the three main types of insurance. Awesome. And so that brings us to the last thing, which is long-term disability. So we get lots of questions as to whether or not the long-term disability insurance provided by our employer is as good as the private plans that have, you've heard all about outside today. Now, I will stress that this does end up being a personal decision. You do have to think of the pros and cons. Uh, but there's very, very strong arguments in my mind to use the employer-provided disability insurance. And the key highlights from that plan is that you get 66% of your regular salary should you become disabled. You get coverage until the age of 65. The payout that you get on a monthly basis is indexed to inflation. And you have two years of disability coverage under your own occupation and then disability coverage for any occupation thereafter. I'm not going to answer questions about this one specifically now. We can really get detail-oriented, and it's lots of fun to talk about the details. I think the high-level takeaway is if you're in a shorter residency, this is a really great plan. Even if you're in a longer residency, this is still a very competitive plan, and you just have to talk with a financial advisor and come up with your own solution at the end of the day. So, All right, so last tip. That brings us to tip number seven, and so the last one is, we'll go back to the handheld, is to talk about finances. So I think in medicine, sometimes we get into this pattern that we're very uncomfortable talking about finances. We're uncomfortable sort of sharing our tips and things like that. But your colleagues will all have different tips on how to save, how to potentially, what financial products are good, what strategies they're using. And I think it's good to talk about finances. So feel comfortable to talk about finances and acknowledge that it's very helpful to learn from your colleagues. One th great example of this is a Facebook group that got started just over a year ago that has definitely occupied most of my social media time. Um, it's called the Financial Physician Financial Independence Group. It's on Facebook. Some of you may have heard it. It's a group of Canadian physicians, residents, medical students who are just talking 
talking about financial questions. And the questions are completely vary from very basic and beginner information to much more advanced. And so this group has gained a lot of traction, and it's, an, I think, a very valuable resource. Full disclosure, it's going to definitely fill up your Facebook feed because it's very actively used by, I think it's over 12,000 physicians in Canada who use it. Um, but I would consider, if you're interested, join this group and get it for some more information. So that brings us to the end of our finance presentation. Um, so again, these are just things we wanted to share that we've collected from our other residents. When you think about things like products, like insurance and that sort of thing, talk to the insurance people. We wanted to provide what you get as insurance out of the collective agreement, but definitely seek out professional advice if you have any further questions. So that, I think, is everything for our finance presentation. So thanks for sticking with us through that. I hope you learned something from the cast. Two points of information that I want to tack on at the end here. The first has to do with debt. During the presentation, we talked about the importance of securing the lowest possible debt and to consolidate your debt if one of your debt sources has a high interest rate. There's a little asterisk and caveat on that. That is, if you are training in a rural location, many rural sites will offer a debt payback if you agree to work in a rural location. But that debt payback is only ever for tuition costs, so costs you've incurred through either a federal or provincial student loan. If you consolidate your student loans prior to completing your residency, you won't be eligible for these debt payback programs. So if you find yourself in a rural program and are thinking of working rurally, it may not make sense to consolidate your loans. Again, consider your own personal situation carefully. The other thing I wanted to discuss in a little bit more detail was the piece around critical illness insurance. During the presentation, I mentioned that you probably don't need critical illness insurance if you are able to withdraw three to five months of living expenses from your line of credit. I'm going to make an even stronger recommendation here because I forgot one key point in our collective agreement. We actually have a short-term disability provision in our collective agreement that pays your full salary for the first five months of any time off. So what that basically amounts to is a critical illness insurance policy. So you don't need critical illness insurance because you basically already have it through your contract. So those were just two extra bits of food for thought. Thank you very much for joining us today. We will catch you in our next episode. Bye for now.